reconciling them, which has played itself out. But that words like white supremacist, I think, are much more accurate uh, about saying where the issue of prejudice is. Mm -hmm. It's about a sense of kind of I'm attaching to, to this sense of who I am, and, and it, it's heightened beyond this other group that I'm opposed to outreach in relation to my English. And so words like, you know, maybe Islamist supremacist would be a redirection. Um, and uh, I think that the, the word, the phobia part is out of the, uh, of the history of uh, fear as a um, motivation for these kinds of uh, relations. Uh, but it's not as accurate because uh, it's more about how is someone relating to his or her own group. And, and I think there's more that's possible to do that than it's been, it's been done. I'm sorry for the methodological question, I guess, to, to the psychologists here. That to, I'm a person who studies history, a history of communism, history of left. Um, and, you know, uh, when, when I look at sort of communist societies, you can't really know what people were thinking, right? Because there were no polling, no free public press. There was no freedom of expression in certain periods. And, and when, even when people were writing diaries, they were narrating them through a certain prescribed um, narrative. And I wonder just how, how exactly we can gauge, you know, the levels of, of hatred, of anti-Semitism. Because, yeah, of course, Iranian leadership, okay, they, they say it, but, you know, how do we really read or statistically know what's going on on we the don't. other side? <laughs> and I wonder what, you know, how, how exactly, so we can influence if we don't, Somebody was doing a study on, on which mosques in the West Bank were controlled by Hamas. If you know Hamas is controlling the mosques. Well, authority you can know, but otherwise. Uh, we have the Pew Global Attitudes yeah. study, which so looked at um, Muslim attitudes towards Jews compared to other groups across about five or six Muslim countries. And they found there that, that, at, that negative attitudes towards Jews um, never dropped below 60%, and that was Turkey. And that if you looked at, compared in Europe, negative attitudes toward Jews on the exact same measure never got above 20%. So that's, that's one way of quantifying it. And another way of looking at it is if you, you analyze, you can content analyze the media and look for what type of views are presented and whether they're answered. And if you find that the, the views are presented regularly and that, answer, that responding views are not um, presented, that would give you another type of measure. I have a slightly more hopeful yeah. uh, <laughs> uh, idea of proportions, you know, using attachment theory. And uh, pretty consistently in attachment theory, uh, researchers have found that about, you know, between 60 and 70% of infants or young children are, are classified as secure attached, securely attached to their caregiver. What that means is essentially uh, uh, an optimal balance between their kind of uh, connection with their caregiver and their own capacity to explore, to have autonomy, uh, develop their autonomy as a, as a young child. And, and consistently also what's been found is that the insecure attachments, they're split into what they call ambivalent, anxious attachment or an avoidant attachment. And, and those are between 15 and 20% on either end. Those are, and those are more associated with pathology. 
And the reason I think that that uh, framework it might be uh, an important one is because it's a framework that basically looks at this the secure attachment is essentially an optimal balanced position, and that majority of children have that growing up. Whereas the extremes are really laying out uh, separation and attachment dynamics, which are the basic components of how we affiliate with large groups, the importance of having an affiliation with a large group while maintaining our autonomy as an individual and an optimal balance in that kind of a position. And so we could, if it's, if it, you know, there's for research here, I'm not, I don't have the ability to do that, but to, to see if those uh, positions of uh, classifications of attachment play out in, at the large group level, then it would say that a, a, small, a smaller percentage would be perhaps ongoingly prejudiced. You know, everyone has got that potential, you know, when, when uh, they're, when, what I started about in the paper in terms of the, the boundary between the group and the person gets narrowed based on, let's say, context. Mm -hmm. Even though people in that optimal balance move temporarily over to the large group, but then they move back, you know, because they, they've got that capacity. So I think that's a framework that re for researchers might be helpful in assessing levels of uh, prejudice. That, but you know the very high percentage of the traumatized individuals do develop insecure attachment and social attachment. So it's going to really make it very difficult to differentiate between those who've been abused and maybe victims or traumatized versus those who you're proposing may hold prejudice uh, views and that because there's a disruption in their capacity to attach mm -hmm. and to be part of you know I guess just in terms of if there's a real trauma in someone's life that's uh, identifiable, then they have to explore this. I like the answer though that you know there are direct measures. I mean the problem is I was being glib before, but but you know the problem is that there's some prejudices and some depending on the social context you're going to get people underreporting, right? Um, but you know with this kind of really overt. Um, ideological anti-Semitism that's accepted within the society. You know, you, you are able. It is visible because because it is it isn't hidden. But I think in other circumstances, you know, it's 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 maybe lurking more in the background, or there's more political correctness or responding right. that sort of thing. And then we don't we don't always know. I mean, yeah. don't, you know, I would think that in Europe, right. you know, people are already conditioned to answer questions in a certain way, but they will not come out as right. anti-Semitic. Right. You know, in a certain, you know, they know, or or even just, you know, political correctness. People know sort of what they're supposed to say or not supposed to say, right. about not just. But Jews, at the current epicenter of the problem, mm -hmm. I think, you yeah. know, you're right. I mean, you can look at these attitudes are very overt, mm -hmm. and that, you know, that, and they, there are clean data on them that I think probably are pretty accurate. Yeah, if you have a forty-one part series based on the um, protocols of the elders of Zion that's shown on, on Egyptian television, 
and then you have debates in the newspaper about whether yes. the Jews are um, entirely guilty of this or partially guilty of this, but nobody says innocent of this, then that, that tells me that it's fairly widespread. Imagine if ABC and NBC started having programs saying, you know, blacks are inferior, or let, you know, let's reestablish slavery, and people said, hey, good entertainment. And there was nothing in any of the entertainment pages about, you know, hey, maybe this is a, you know, racist. That would tell you something about America. I want to respond to what Antoinette's question. Basically, uh, when we talk about general processes, we don't need to look for. I mean, it's supposed to humanities that we look at specific phenomena, and, and in psychology, we look at general processes. Like, so if we study in lab that there is connection between association of um, Jews and apes, okay, so these are the two, the two are connected and then it's like the association between the two affect hostility, then in, el, in any context that this association is activated, this will cause to hostility. And then we don't need to have the whole picture because we studied and we, we, we looked at it in there and then we, we try to generalize it and to see if it works also in reality. And so we don't have to have, we don't have to, you know, we can't get the whole picture to, in order to, uh, to create intervention. We can create specific, small specific interventions, and we can because we can never capture the whole picture. There are so many aspects, and but if we empirically study a specific vignette, and then we can uh, design interventions that specifically capture that, I think it's a, it's a, it's a, benefit, it's a benefit. So that's the way I see. Yeah, I wanted to say to Peter that maybe we can use the IPT. Uh, do you know what IPT is? The measure of implicit uh, prejudice, uh, yeah. and, and it's usually used in the context of, of, of uh, anti-black uh, stereotypes or, or prejudice, and I think it can be used in the in the yeah, yeah in the context of because it was never used, I think, as far as I know, in the context of, of anti-Semitism and, and maybe the connection between yes, Jew and, and even positive. Uh,
causing cancer in a supermarket, they will take it off the shelf immediately. So it's 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 very strong. So we in uh, in our article, I think it's the only one that we kind of do this uh, in, in this manner. That statistics. And that's really so it's in the Journal of Conflict Resolution. I do think getting back to interventions. I mean, I think I appreciate the point that if you're going to have bang for your buck, it's not going to be you know. It's really this Middle Eastern genocidal anti-Semitism and then the problem is access and you know that there really almost has to be top-down negotiated political solutions, you know, to get to get to filter that down because it's really, you know. There's, a, there's also two sides to this problem. On the one hand, there's the ra radical Islam and genocidal anti-Semitism and a social movement which is real in many Islamic countries. On the other hand, there's, the, there's this acquiescence of the left in, the, in right. Western Europe and North America. Right. But particularly when that might be more attackable. Yeah, that could be an area to be researched more easily. Because if, if this rhetoric is true, true, why with liberals in the West who are diametrically opposed to everything that you know, reactionary radical Islam stands for, in terms of democracy, citizenship, women's rights, gay rights, why is there this turning the blind eye when it comes to Israel and the Jewish question. There are a few answers to that, I guess. One would be, in my view, a culturalizing view. And this is part of a certain culture that is a different culture, and we have to accept this. So the are churches are still very active in Europe, just as the mosques are in the Arab country. The Catholic churches are still teaching that we have killed people. I have met people who have never seen a Jew but hate them. We had somebody who said, oh, well, gee, you're Jewish, where are your horns? I mean, I'm serious, adults asking these kind of questions. So the stereotype is extremely strong. In regard to the education of Muslims, there was a comment made during, uh, was it Stephen who made this? comment about uh, Saudi Arabia and trying to sending out, uh, trying to tone down? Is that, is anyone else? I heard of that, but I was in UNESCO two, three weeks ago in Paris, and they had this Project Allergy, which is um, from the Shoah Foundation, and it's being supported by the Saudis and other, uh, the, uh, the Organization of Islamic Countries are involved, 56 countries. There are 3,000 people in UNESCO, and they launched this project um, to fight the denial of the Holocaust. And uh, the president of Senegal, the Muslim, stood up and said there's a war against the Jews today, uh, and there's a war against the memory of the Holocaust, and a war against the memory of the Holocaust is a war against the Jews, a war against the Jews is a war against humanity. 3,000 people from 56 Muslim countries were in the United Nations and uh, applauded him. So there, there is good work going on. So there, is, there are signs of hope. I don't know about but he spoke about in Saudi Arabia, but we're supporting this. So there, there are good things happening. Yeah, I just saw it in one of the articles today that they actually cited scripts from the education system in Saudi Arabia. Maybe they just completely flooded or maybe it's coming from their education system. So it's going it faster, yeah. you know, in terms of. It's hard to accept, Excuse me? Hard to accept. The United States has been specifically lobbying with the Saudis for years about trying to get them to change 
their educational materials. And then actually that type of lobbying is one form of intervention that might work. In other words, when there's a lull and when America's got good relations with an Arab country for a while and when Israel has some relatively good relations, then one of the places where you can make progress is in trying to reverse some of this negative education. And that could be a mid-level kind of intervention which has some hope for the future but which doesn't require um, you know, dealing with the Iranian government or involving the Israeli conflict first. Well, in Geneva, and maybe Josh can talk to it too, but I met with, actually I met with the head of the Organization of Islamic Countries there, and there are many Islamic countries that are very worried about the rise of Iran and Shia Islam, and they're, they're I think, very open to dealing with Holocaust now, and anti-Semitism, as long as people deal with Islamophobia, they're very open to Western and even Israeli and Jewish contact. So, there's a lot of breaks. I don't know if Josh should be. Yeah, I have the same experience. There are a number of Palestinians in particular upset about what's going on. The rise in power of Iran. Not all Palestinians, obviously, but the ones that I spoke to were at a conference largely about human rights. Certainly other Arab countries, too. Well, I was going to make the comment when um, somebody pointed out that Iran is not likely to use their bomb on Israel. That doesn't mean they're not likely to use it on somebody else. And it may well be that they get to develop it by saying we're going to use it on Israel, we're going to use it on Israel. But when they're actually involved in a conflict, they're going to be more likely to use it against a country that doesn't have nuclear weapons. And they're also likely to have their influence augmented in international affairs by having it without using it. So that um, the, the question of what, and I think they, probably, they, they may well find a way to justify using it even though Muslims are killed, but I think they don't have to in order for it to be dangerous. And it may well be that when people are doing realpolitik calculations in some of the Arab countries, they're considering that they are probably more likely to be actual victims in Israel. Okay, so I think we'll wrap up. We're supposed to leave the room around 6.30 anyway. So. Everybody, thank you very much, and please uh, I'll be in touch with the scholars about the papers, and if anybody has ideas, suggestions uh, to work with us at ESA, for those who are not already, uh, we're open to creative, innovative ideas and we're inclusive, so please feel free to contact us and speak with us. And thank you all very much for your participation. Thank you.